think I was in one of those moments where I don't remember what I was saying, but I was telling her about, I think I was just talking about what a bad son I'd been. And he wasn't even awake to it. He didn't know it was happening. And I'm not really a big fan of feet. I don't like him to creep me out. But the truth is, this is what was required. Uh, we started to walk out and this lady who I'd never met before, and I'd never seen her since, pulled me aside and she said something. She said, you know, I don't recognize the son you just talked about. And I remember thinking, that's Alcoholics Anonymous. Like, that's the 12 steps in action. Like Because the son that I described to her was, was there. He lived at one time. And what she said was, like, I don't recognize that. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M., I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you're all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride. Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Hello, my little chickadees. That was the voice of Mr. Brian P. that you heard at the beginning of this episode, and you will be hearing so much more from him in just a moment. But first things first, this episode, the one that you are listening to right here, right now, is brought to you by Matthew and Chip and Rick and Gerhard and Chris. Do you know what Matthew and Chip and Rick and Gerhard and Chris did? Well, let me tell you. They went to our website, our website, soberspeak.com. They clicked on the little yellow donate tab and they made a contribution. Thank you so much, Matthew and Chip and Rick and Gerhard and Chris. This episode is coming right out to youans and we because we are generous people are going to let all the other listeners listen in on this episode uh but this episode is coming out right to you all muchas gracias and once again that is my bilinguality coming right out at ya right to ya All right. So anyway, let's get right on into this episode because I have been looking so forward to listening to, to, to releasing this episode. Uh, I've listened to it already. Well, I I listened to it when we recorded it. (laughs) So I know it's on it. That's why I've been looking forward to releasing this episode. Brian P has been sober for 27 years. He was a bank robber. He was a jockey. 
not like at the same time or anything like that, but he, he, he did both of those things at separate times. And, uh, Brian addresses his uh, relationship with his family, including his mom and dad and his brother that died at the age of just seven years old of cancer. Brian talks about that vital sixth sense and tapping into that intuitive thought that it talks about in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. There's some funny parts in here. There's some really serious parts. There's some dark moments. And Brian is going to take you on a ride. I'm telling you, folks, just hang on and listen to this one all the way through. It will be worth your time, I promise you. And we have plenty. Oh, listener feedback at the end of this thing. You guys are killing me in a good way. A lot of listener feedback. So that'll all be at the end of the episode after you hear Brian's story. So I'll see you on the other end of this one and enjoy Brian P. Buckle up and enjoy the ride. Okay, everybody. So today we are sitting here with Mr. Brian P. So Mr. Brian P., why don't you go ahead, introduce yourself, give you sobriety date if you wish, and then I'll set it up a little bit further. Hey, everybody. My name is Brian. I'm an alcoholic. Sobriety date, March 6th of 1993. And uh, my home group is the Smoking Gun Big Book Step Study. Smoking Gun? Yeah, down in Oak Cliff. Really? Oh. I didn't even know that was down there. Yes. You know, I grew up in Oak Cliff. Did you really? I did, yeah. Oh, I love it. Yeah, yeah. So there was a smoking gun. Yes. And so where does that come from, that name? Well, you know, it's the silliest name. The guy who, one of our co-founders had some weird thing about finding a smoking gun in his inventory, and he brought it up like that. We don't use that. He used to be in our format, but we just we just stuck with the name. <laughs> and we have a 10-gallon uh, cowboy hat for the seventh tradition. <laughs> <laughs> and here's one. None of the founders were from Texas. <laughs> we're all from, like, out of state. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Well, so since 1993, help me with the math there. That is how many years? Uh, 27. 27 years. Congratulations. Thanks. All right. So let's just go ahead and start it this way. So how did you get here? How did you get to Alcoholics Anonymous? What's a nice guy like you doing in a program like You're Alcoholics right. Anonymous? Yeah, that's a loaded question. Um, you know, I was court ordered. Well, my pro officer sent me to AA. So the the story around that is I just I just spent another year in prison, and I my family had basically said you can't come home anymore. They I was going to be twenty eight, and they said no more. And so I ended up in a homeless place, but I still had federal parole. And then I drank while there, which I wasn't supposed to. And my parole officer gave me a break. He actually, he said I'm not going to send you back to prison because you you've already done seven years and. Eight months is the most you could do. So I'm going to suggest you go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And up to then, I focused on my drug addiction. I didn't think I hid my alcoholism right behind my drug addiction because all the drama was around my drug use. Um, but I couldn't stay sober and I could not not drink. Okay. So let's back up here a little bit. You said you had just spent another year in prison. Right. So what got you in prison? So now I was 21, so this must have been 1984, 83, 84. I was heavily involved in some drugs, drug use. And, and you know, I was drinking, and, and there was all that part of it, but I wasn't even, I wouldn't have not even noticed my alcoholism. I, in hindsight, I can see it, but I couldn't see it then because I was into heavily using drugs, and I was dealing drugs, and I was robbing drug dealers, and I was stealing from people. And, and basically, I was getting in debt. 
in debt, and I got to a place. You were robbing drug dealers. Yeah, you know, like, and that sounds more dramatic than it really was. I'm talking more like maybe people I know I went to high school with, and uh, some was just not paying my debts, which is, you know, stealing, but not. So it wasn't gangster, like, running with a gun, but it was, it was, um, it was stealing from people. Right. And uh, so anyway, it all came to a head, and I was uh, out of, I was out of, there was no more options. I couldn't, I owed all the money. I'd take my roommate's rent money. Uh, uh, basically, I'd been, you know, paying Paul to pay Mary, this whole game, just, it's a circle, and then it ended. And so I didn't know what to do, and I went out, took a friend of mine, and we were going to go rob a Kentucky Fried Chicken, which... I don't even know where that came from, but so you 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 decided to rob a KFC. Do you know why you picked out the KFC? You, you know, I the reason I said at the time. I mean, in, okay, you understand. I was I was sober at the time, but I was in a lot of like I was really in a dark spot. I don't know why. Like I can't bring it back to my memory, except I knew the place, I knew where it was, and I'd eaten there in the evenings, and there was only two or three people on, and I figured we could rob them, tie them up, and take the money. So we didn't do it. We ended up eating a meal there. It was pathetic. We ended up, we had to have like a three piece, you know, you know, uh, we got really scared. So, you know, so that's that night. I, I but went you up. were sitting there oh, in no, the restaurant, we, loaded up, look, ready to go. I, I literally walked in. Here's how it went down. I had my roommate's car. I had ski mask, gun rope, and my friend who was really not any, any kind of criminal element. And uh, we drove in, and then I went into the bathroom because I was scared. I went in. I, they just looked at me, and I just knew they knew. And he came in and said, "What do we? What do? You, what's going on?" And I said, "I said we can't. I can't do this." And he said, "Yeah, me neither." He said, "What are we gonna do?" And I go, "I don't know. Let's go eat." So then, <laughs> so then we went. Cause I, I couldn't see leaving without eating, so we just ate. And so it's really <laughs> pathetic. Uh, but that was the end of for me. That was like. I dropped him off and then I went out to the desert to kill myself. And that was uh, at 21. That was probably the darkest where I pumping fumes in and. Uh, Wait, is it pumping fumes? Oh, yeah. So I cut off car. a piece of hose and I drove out to the desert. I was like 30 miles out in the desert and in my roommate's car. And, uh, you know, I didn't really see, I couldn't see any hope. Um, and I didn't know what I was going to do. And probably 20 minutes into that and. I uh, I had a moment of clarity, I think a moment of like selflessness or something, because my mom, uh, my brother had died of cancer when he was seven. So I was five, he was seven. So my mom, I mean, I watched what my mom went through. You know, like I watched how that destroyed my mom. And I had this moment where I just couldn't do that to my mom. It would just kill her if her youngest, because I'm the youngest of four boys, and it would destroy her. And so I just climbed out of the car and just walked around the desert trying to figure out like what's you know, what's my problem? And what I figured out, see, I, the problem wasn't that I was stealing from people, using drugs, drinking daily. The problem was I didn't have enough money. And so if, if lack of funds is your dilemma, then getting money is your solution. So I drove into town the next day and robbed a bank. Um, okay, well, let's go through the thought process there. So you said, so you had lack of funds and, and you couldn't rob the, Kentucky Fried Chicken, but for whatever reason, you kind of upped the ante. You decided you were going to go to a bank. Yeah, so here's the difference. And I had read earlier, like two weeks before, I'd read about a bank robbery where they handed him a note. And so I think, you know, like when I go back to it, because you're, you're, you're talking I'm 58 now, so you're talking 37 years ago, and trying to remember my thought process in a haze of alcoholism and drug addiction. 
but I, the gun is what bothered me, like pulling the gun, maybe having to use it, someone getting hurt because the bank was a lot easier for me because I'd read that they just hand them a note. And again, this is 84. <laughs> you couldn't Google it. You can't find, you know, you just got to wing it. And so I just, and I actually robbed my parents' savings and loans, the one that they banked at. Oh, no. I mean, <laughs> you're not, you're talking, not talking a master criminal mind here. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty bad. Okay, so you went into the bank. Yeah, so I'll walk you through that process. Because, you know, I, and I was sober. It was probably 10 o'clock in the morning. And I didn't have any disguise. I had no gloves. I mean, it just I was just me. And I went up to the counter where you take out withdrawal slips and deposit slips, you know. Uh, again, this is 84. They still have that. But anyway, so I wrote on there. Now, I don't remember this, but I, when I left with the note, I saw it. I wrote, um, this, is a, this is a robbery. Give me $50 or I'll kill you. Oh, $50? <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and I'll be honest with you, I never told that story for a long time. Why too embarrassing or way too embarrassing? Are you kidding me? I mean, who does that? That's just ridiculous. Um, and I and I stood do you know? Line. Do you know why you came up no, with that? No, I had amount? no idea. I just was like, I just wrote. It. I had no idea. In fact, I stood in line. Uh, I was patient. You know, I just waited like I was going to cash a check or withdraw some money. Do you remember being very nervous? Oh yeah, I remember looking around and then. There wasn't a lot of people in the bank at the time, so I think there was maybe two people in front of me. Uh, and then she called me up, and I went up and I gave her the note, and she gave me $50, and I ran. Uh, and I had the note. I, I kept the note. And when I got back to my roommate's car, it wasn't mine, I, r- I read the note, and I'm like... Wow. Well, I know. It was really bad. So, so did you have any particular aim or goal with the $50? <laughs> no, no. I ended up robbing another bank a couple hours later. So I... I drove over to 7-Eleven, got a six-pack of beer, and got calmed down and realized I, 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 this isn't going to pay the bills. And so I drove all the way across town. This is in Tucson, Arizona. And, uh, and then robbed another bank. And then I got the money. I got everything I needed. I mean, I don't even know the amount, but I know I was able to pay all my debts off and have excess money to go to like Vegas and Mexico. And, really? Yeah. So it wasn't a lot, but it was enough. Right. Yeah, it probably had to be three to four thousand, maybe five. I don't know. But so, were there any repercussions? It sounds like you got away with it to some degree. Well, I mean, yeah, in the moment. So yeah. So so what happened is, I went and paid all my bills, paid all my debts, um, came home. I I, had a, I was dating a girl who I was really engaged to. We were going to get married, or we were talking about getting married. And uh, I just took her out to dinner, and we went shopping, and and I just went to work the next day. I was painting houses. The guy that I was going to rob the Kentucky Fried Chicken with, the KFC, him and I worked on the same work crew. So I he knew because he had heard in the news about uh, a young bank robber. Because I was again, I was twenty one, but I was I'm five foot one. I look like I'm I look like I was sixteen, and so he kind of <laughs> knew, but he didn't know. And I played it off like that's crazy. And and then I went to work, and nothing happened for you know. For well, six months later, I ran out of money and I robbed another one. Really? So they 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 couldn't track. I mean, you didn't have a mask. You didn't have no, anything. No, they had pictures. So after the third one, I really angry. I guess the FBI got angry because they were trying to. They, they knew it was me, and so they put my picture out on the six o'clock news, uh, in the newspaper, uh, eight eight crime, five thousand dollar reward. So after the third one, about two weeks later. The, my picture came out 
my roommates, actually my roommates had clipped it out and put it on the refrigerator door and I came home from work and it was just like every day I'd go to the liquor store and you know, and Wait, is, did your roommates know it was you? No, the funny thing, here's, here's how it went down. So <laughs> I come home like I did every other day and I, I am, you know, put the booze in the refrigerator. And then when I look at the, fr- before I open the door, I see this picture of me clipped out of the paper. I know it's me. It doesn't say it's me, but I know it's me. And I take it down and I walk out to my room and there's like three roommates. And I just said, uh, I said, what's this? And uh, they, they were really high at the time. And he's like, oh, dude, man, there's some dude is running around town. Robin Banks looks just like you. <laughs> like, seriously. And even today, like two of those guys, I've been in their wedding. And they, I mean, we still like, they had no clue because it, it was so out of character. You know, it was just a desperate act from a desperate man. And, uh, and nobody would believe that that's, that I would do that. Wow. That is wild. All right, so so you're Robin Banks. What happens? Well, you said six months later something happened. Then, well, that's so it was, the little picture in the paper was two weeks after my third bank robbery, and then about two weeks after that, uh, I got a knock at the door in the morning. I didn't go to work. I was supposed to meet my girlfriend, and I was late, so I ran to the door. I was in my underwear, opened it up, and it was three FBI agents. Three in the front, three in the back. We were, we were, I had three roommates. There was four of us living in a house. And um, so they arrested me. And then they did what they do. They took me to, you know, took me, I got locked up for 72 hours. And then um, my parents bailed me out. You know, got me a lawyer. Again, I, you know, I come from a pretty good family. You know, my dad worked at IBM. My mom was an accountant. And, you know, like. Were they shocked? Oh, my. They were completely shocked. I mean, everybody was shocked. Nobody was, nobody was like, oh, I saw that coming. Everybody was like, what's going on? And I made a story, you know, like, uh, that somebody was out to get me. And, you know, I just lied about it. Did you ever take a gun into the bank or was it always notes? No, it was always notes. You know, I didn't, I don't, it was just safer, I think. You know, <laughs> you're you're a, a safety first bank robber, right? Right, yeah, always safety first. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was crazy. And then, and then my lawyer told me I was going to go to prison because he got the evidence and like it was clear it was me. You know, they got my fingerprints and handwriting analysis. It was you know, and so two weeks before I went to trial, I robbed another one. You robbed another bank. It's, it's like somebody getting a DWI while they're on right. trial, while they're about to go to trial for a DWI. Yeah, well, it's a little more extreme than that, but it's the exact same yeah. scenario. Like I, I well, and and not that not in my defense, but my mindset was, I'm you know, you're when you're 21 and you're going to prison for 10 years, it's like seems like a life sentence to me. And so I just had, I was really dark and just hopeless. And so I just did it. And what were you going to do with the money if you were going you know, to prison? the truth is I was, I was just going to party that weekend. Gotcha. That's really how, and so that's what, that's how I struggled to identify being an alcoholic because I had so much drama wrapped around my drug use, you know, that I couldn't see it. Because then, then I got, they didn't let me out. They got rest of me three days later and then I went to prison for six years. Wow. Okay, so do and did that did that thir- did that additional bank robbery before your uh, sentence uh, add more? Yeah. So actually, no. So what happened is my lawyer he was super mad first off that I did that, and he was my roommate's. I had used his son's car in a bank robbery. He didn't know that until later when I had to make amends. But um, so he was mad, but he negotiated because again I was twenty one. I had no criminal record. Uh, 
that it was clearly I had a drug problem. And so basically he, he negotiated with the district attorney, like we'll plead guilty to the first three, drop the fourth one and drop committing a felony while on bond, which is like a mandatory sentence added on. So I pled guilty, no restitution. You know, he, so he really was a good lawyer. And I think the district attorney knew that uh, there was, I was not a criminal, like a career criminal. I was just a guy who got caught up and, uh, and I had to pay the price. So, and it would seem to me, you already mentioned it, you're five foot one. There can't be a lot of five foot one male bank robbers running around town. Were you easily identified? Yeah. I mean, no, not at all. I mean, that's how they knew it was me. They couldn't see my head over the counter. It's like, (laughs) that's that's Brian. We had to go get him. I mean, it was, I'm sure they looked at it and just like, what is wrong with this guy? Yeah. Okay, so you're now in prison for six years, and uh, and then okay, so where where I got you off track is you said you had been, I think you said you had been in prison again for another year. Yes, yeah. So I got out six years later. I was twenty, I think I was twenty seven, and went to you know, and I did. I think every what I would do for my kids, you know, like they brought me home, they got me a credit card, got me a job, bought me a little car, and uh, and I wasn't. And this is when I started to identify. When this is when I went through the steps, this was the piece that I could identify that, oh, that's alcoholic. Couldn't see it before then, but I saw it this time is, is my parole officer said I had to go to this nine-week IOP program and uh, part of my release. And he said, and while you're in there, while you're in this nine-week program, you can't drink alcohol. And see, I had no conditions on my parole or my probation. I had no conditions about drinking alcohol. That was never part of the stipulation. And so when he told me that, I remember saying, first of all, I got mad. And I said, well, why? I don't have a problem with alcohol. Like, why, why can't I drink alcohol? And he said, well, that's just part of the program because it's a, you know, it's a IOP program and you need to be sober. He said, but the good news is since you don't have a problem with alcohol, not drinking for three months won't be a problem. <laughs> you should be good, right? <laughs> you should be okay. And I remember that logic thinking I couldn't argue with it. I had no defense against that, but I didn't stop drinking. Well, I stopped drinking for 30 days. So I stopped drinking for 30 days and got what I now understand is this internal condition. I got super uncomfortable being sober without a solution. No AA, nothing, right? So I started to get really anxious and really fear and and restless and irritable and discontented and all the things they talk about in the doctor's opinion. That stuff starts just came over me. And then I went to my, again, I, when I say this stuff, I'm thinking, I'm an idiot. But I, my buddy had called me and he said, hey, our 10-year high school reunion is next month. We should go to it. And so that was, I was about 30 days without anything in my system. And I went to my 10-year high school reunion. And, you know, just imagine I was all over the news. Everybody knew where I was. I went to a school that was pretty highly successful. People went there. And, um, you know, I just felt like I, 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 I felt like a loser. I felt like a failure. And everybody's got kids. They got these college experiences. And I'm, you know, and I can't numb it with alcohol. I can't like, I can't get anything. So I ended up about 30 minutes before I ended up in the bar and started drinking. Mm -hmm. And then what happens to me every time I drink is I can't stop once I start. And and I wasn't able to stop the next day. I I got away with it and I got relief and maybe I got the comfortable like that. I could breathe again. And, uh, and so that just continued. And then I ended up, uh, moving on to other substances like I always do and then test positive. And, uh, 
yeah, my pro officer called me and said, we got three dirty urns and you have to come and see me tomorrow. And then they put you back in for I a year? I didn't go back. I didn't go. What happened is I said, uh, I know what that means. When he says, come I said, well, what are you going to do? And he said, I don't know. We'll, we'll talk about it tomorrow. Come to my office. But I know what that is. And so I just packed up. I was at my parents' house. I didn't tell my parents anything. I just got a trash bag and threw all my clothes and left. And uh, and that's the level of selfishness, you know. And then uh, I was pretty much on the run for eight months. And then the federal marshals. When you're on federal parole and you violate they, the federal marshals, you know, like, marshals are out after you and they just find you and they found me one day coming out of the 7-eleven they've been looking for me and then i went back for the year and that's when you know and you gotta understand this my parents the first six years i did came to visit me i'm talking in Terre Haute, indiana and michigan i was in federal prison all over the country so they would fly in see me my dad sent me twenty dollars every week every week my dad sent me twenty dollars money order from my commissary so i could get extra stuff and, uh, yeah, and so, you know, I was looking for my mail that, the, I, you know, I was back in and it was probably two days and they called my name and I thought it was going to be my $20 money order. And it was a letter saying, you can't come home anymore. Like, we love you, but we're not going to financially support you and you can't come and live with us. And, you know, we hope you get a grip on your problem. But, and so that put me i spent a year in that prison and i got out and i was in a homeless place it's kind of like a little treatment place but homeless you know they like they had to feed me there because i had no money and the conditions are there was you can't drink and i only had 60 dollars. you understand i had 60 dollars to my name i was 28 years old 60 dollars. i'm about ready to turn 29 so I, I, the first day the very first day that I was able to get out, not even three days there, I get out to go look for a job because you had to find a job within so many days. I couldn't walk past a liquor store. I just couldn't. And went in, bought a bottle of vodka, went, put it in the bag, walked across the street to the park and just drank all the other winners hanging out there at the park. Really? Yeah. And then, uh, and then of course, the story, and everybody knows, right? I start drinking, I can't stop. And then a week later, I get caught. And my professor comes to see me. And what he did was, and now this is the guy who went to court a year before and told the judge, if this guy is allowed to stay on the streets with his three dirty urns for the substance that he robbed banks for, he is a, he is a detriment to society. He will rob banks again. So he's the guy who wanted me away. And he came to me and he sat me down. I really thought I was going back to prison. And he said, uh, he said let's have a talk. And basically what he said is he broke his anonymity. He said, I've been a member of AA for six years. So he did that. That's the first thing that caught my attention. And he said, I'm going to recommend to the parole commission that you not go back to prison, that um, I'm going to give you one chance. And I don't even know why I'm giving it to you, but I'm going to give you one chance. And it's the only chance you're going to get. And that chance is uh, you need to start looking at your alcoholism. He said, because you're, you're a drug addict and you know that, but you can't like not drink like you you have to drink like there's a reason that you have to drink and i'm gonna basically sentence you you didn't say sense me i had to get my sheet signed you know like this is back in the uh this is probably 91 90 almost 92 so sheet signing was kind of just starting to ramp up mm -hmm. you know and so i started to go to aa and that was the beginning and that was the only reason i would have even went to AA. I would ne i had no I had no, uh, you know, in the big book talks about delusional and illusion, you know. I wasn't in denial. I just didn't know. I was in, I, I couldn't see the truth from the false. 
I believed, you know, I had a drug problem. I don't have an alcohol problem. No DWIs, no drunken. But if you examine my drinking, like I would drink against my will. I would drink when I shouldn't be drinking. When If somebody said, hey, if you drink, you go to prison. A non-alcoholic wouldn't drink. But that didn't equal alcoholism to me. For some reason, that just looked like I'm getting away with something. Didn't compute. Yeah, right. It did not compute. We will be continuing our conversation with Brian P. in just a moment. Just a reminder, you're listening to Sober Speak. You can find us on the World Wide Web at SoberSpeak.com. You can also find the donate button on our website if and only if the spirit moves you to use it. You can. Please keep in mind, this is a podcast funded by you, the listener. Sober Speak is a self-supporting organization through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. All right, now back to Mr. Brian P. Have you talked to that parole officer? Well, that's interesting. Nobody ever asked me that, but I called him uh, up until six years sober. Every year on my anniversary, because I was living in Maine, I, I got sober. You know, I relapsed one more time, then I got sober, and I, I met a girl, and we moved to Maine. As about one year sober, and so every year on my anniversary up till six, I would call him, and uh, and I would say, you know, hey, this is Brian so and so, and he'd say, yeah, what do you want? And I'd say, hey, I just want to let you know, I'm two years sober. Wow. And he would say, and I'd say, thank you so much, and he'd say, well, thank God. So up until he retired, he retired, and I haven't talked to him since. Gotcha. Okay, so you're in AA now. Mm-hmm. Take me forward from that point. So now we got to cover 20, uh, years. 26 years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay, so I moved to Maine. I got involved. You know, I went through the steps right away. I got a guy who was a big book in Tucson, and he walked me through the steps, and everything he promised happened. I mean, I was completely awakened where I was asleep. And I didn't know I was asleep spiritually, but I, I, I was an atheist when I walked in here, and, and I got busy making amends and um, got busy doing what the program has to do. And I, I've always had sponsors who were like involved in service, you know, and they've got a home group, they've got a job in their home group. And uh, so one thing he did is he didn't want me to go back to Maine. He didn't want me to go to Maine until I started making a lot of my amends. So that's really what I did for that year. I just went around Tucson and made, you know, and like, and I got a lot of truth, you know, because the reality was like I made amends to my mom. And, and this is this this is that, this has never left me. In the big book, it talks about selfishness and self-centered is the root of our trouble. And I knew that intellectually, but I, I knew it in my heart when I made amends to my mom because I made amends. I paid her money. And, and you know, one of, part of my thing is, is there anything you want to share with me? And my mom shared that, uh, now you understand, she buried Chucky when he was, well, when he was seven, right? She looked at me and she said, you know, uh, it was harder to write you that letter than it was to bury Chucky. <sighs> Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, who who wants to be that son? So I, I you know, I didn't know. I didn't get it, you know, because I'm, again, I'm like nine months sober. And I remember asking her, like, because well, I watched my mom. My mom was an alcoholic or hard drinker alcoholic, but she could not not drink. And, and a lot of it was around my brother's death. Like, that's, that's when it really started. And so she said, you know, with you, I, you know, Chucky, he had cancer and, like, we just gave him to the doctors, you know. He was six years old, and we said, hey, fix our baby. But with you, she said, I had a choice. So she goes, I put that in the mailbox on Monday, and then I didn't even leave it in there for five minutes. I went and pulled it out. She goes, I did that every day. I couldn't leave it in the mailbox. 
And then the only way you even got is on Friday, your dad put his hand on my shoulder and said, let him go. And she said, you know, she was, I, I, I didn't get out of bed for three days. Wow. And it's interesting. Well, not interesting, but it's so, uh, the, the, it's a spiritual law, I think. You know, I went into recovery resenting my mom because of that, and I came out of that through the step process owing her an amends for that. You know, I remember that was my biggest resentment that she wouldn't let me come home. And then when I really analyzed the truth is, you know, I made my mom do that, you know. Same mother, same son, but things changed. Yeah. yeah. So moved to Maine and uh, started, you know, my my uh, girlfriend who was soon to be my wife just started. We started getting busy, started doing AA, you know, got a job, got a home group, GSR, sponsoring people, you know, going to conferences and, you know, doing what AA is. You know, we were, you know, I was in my 30s. She was in her 20s. And so we just, we didn't have any kids and. We just got really busy. and uh, Do I remember you saying something about being a jockey at some point along the line here? Yeah, well, that was way back. Yeah, it was probably on another story you heard. But no, when I Was that before you got sober or after? That was in, right when I got sober and then I relapsed. I was working at a treatment center. They, had a, they raced thoroughbreds and quarter horses. And a guy, I was in that place, the homeless place, going to meetings and a guy... I was getting out. I was like three months sober and I wanted to be sober. And I knew if I went back to my old roommates and my old people, I'd probably not. And I remember sharing that in a meeting. Like, I don't know. I'm not asking for a handout. I'm just in a tight place here. I'm going to get out of this place and I don't know where to live. And so if anybody can help me find a place or, you know, find somewhere to go. And a guy pulled me aside and said, I own a treatment center outside, 30 miles outside of Tucson. And we race quarter horses and thoroughbreds and we have a track and you're just tiny enough to do that. So I remember, and I remember saying like, yeah, I said, uh, yeah, I don't even like horses. <laughs> he said, that's not what I asked. You said, you just shared that you need a place. I'm going to give you a place, $50 a week room and board and get you the two A meetings a day, you know, a, a day. Like you want that or not? And uh, so I ended up going out there. How much did you weigh at the time? Do oh, you probably 110. I mean, oh. it was perfect. That was perfect jockey weight. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So did you end up enjoying it after? You know, I I was always scared. You know, like there's nothing more, you know, my wife uh, or my girlfriend at the time, she was born and raised with horses. She'd been around horses her whole life. I had hardly any, you know, maybe a few saddle rides, you know, like. uh, So getting on a thoroughbred and running full speed while you're sitting up in the stirrups and you're hanging over his neck uh, is pretty. (laughs) I like the adrenaline of it, but man, it was like. Did you ever take any spills? No, not not racing like that, no. Okay. And I didn't do that much. I mean, we were just conditioning and stuff. So I didn't, and I didn't do it very long either, you know, not even a year. But but it just kind of, inter- well, I haven't met many jockeys. Yeah, I, in fact, I you like, could be the only one I know, like personally. <laughs> or bank robbers. I mean, how many bank robbers do you know? <laughs> you know, my, my guess is I've known a bank robber, but people probably aren't as open as it, yeah, right. about it as you are. I bet they never got $50. <laughs> Okay, so let's go back to uh, uh, you were, I think you were coming out of your first year there. Yeah, so we're in Maine. You know, we get a home group. I get a sponsor, a new sponsor. Uh, Again, phones, cell phones weren't even around. This is like 94. So my sponsor in Tucson said, you got to get a local sponsor. And uh, so I got a guy who was involved in service and, and he was probably six years ahead of me. So we became, you know, we just, I just did, we just did AA. We just did, you know, like we got a home group, got a job in your home group, went to district meeting. We did, went to detoxes. And then, um, 
And then my real passion that happened in the end was, uh, or there was about three years into it, a lady heard my story who was the, um, she was the area corrections um, chairperson. She heard my story at some event I was speaking at and she basically stalked me for six months. Cause you, where I lived, I lived about, there was probably 20 miles from my house in a, a parameter about five penal institutions, like the maximum security prison, the medium, the minimum, uh, a, re, a release center. And, uh, and I wasn't doing any service work in those places because I didn't want to go behind the walls again. Were you scared? I wasn't scared. Well, I had some traumatic experiences in prison, you know, but I, it wasn't so much scared. I just wanted like, I don't want to go back there, you know? Like I could do time, which is kind of scary. That that didn't bother me after my couple first year. I just adapt, uh, but I just didn't want to go back. Okay, so let me ask something real quick. When you say traumatic experiences in prison, is there anything you want to talk about there? Yeah, I'll tell you. Well, here's I'll tell you. And this this I didn't talk about for twenty years. Okay, so I'll tell you. This is. I've had a few spiritual experiences in a you know not just beyond the awakening that the steps brought about, but like a real a shift in my spirit and experience. And so I was, uh, so I'll tell you the story as it was told to my mom and my dad and to my, who was my wife at the time. Uh, I had uh, assaulted a guy in Michigan. I was in Michigan about two, three years into my prison sentence. And I hit a guy with a pipe and uh, it almost killed him. And I got sent to Terre Haute, which is a maximum security prison. Do you remember why you hit him? I'm going to tell you why in a minute. Okay. So I hit him um, and I ended up, spending nine months in solitary down in uh, Terre Haute. The story I told of why I hit him was because he stole some stuff from me. And that's the story that I told my parents. And some of it was, I, it was, there was, because really what happened, I'll tell you in a minute, but what, there was a lot of shame around what happened before, you know, like what the truth was. And also I didn't want my parents, I didn't want my mom worrying about me. And uh, so that story was weaved like that. Uh, for 20 years even my parents my my dad was already dead before i was and tell anybody the truth and the only reason i even talked about it and and this is where i think god moves through us because i would have never i just like put that thing away and walked away from it but i was uh in indianola up in seattle or in washington near seattle and i was doing a big book weekend i was like i was the guest speaker and so i was there it was just three days of going through this steps and had the big book and sharing my experiences. It's just a lot of storytelling. And at the end, they said, hey, we do this Native American ritual called a blanket ceremony. And are you okay with that? And I said, I'm okay with whatever, you know. And I said, what is it? And they said, well, we got this blanket that it's been the elders have blessed it or whatever. And it's supposed to protect the speaker. And so they put me this blanket over me. And we all circled up and they smudged me. And this guy named Loud. Smudged. Smudged. It's like... Um, like a it, substance? Yeah. It's light. It's it's lit. And they light it and they, you know, they wave it around. I can't think of the word now. So, just going to have to draw a blank. But smudge. And if you want to know what smudge is, Google it. But anyway, they, he, he basically, he was in my face and he was blowing the smoke around. And, and he was like trying to get the evil spirits away from me. And what I heard him say, which I found out he never said, what I heard him say was... Um, it's okay, you're safe. It's okay, you're safe. And then he went around and smudged everybody else in the circle. And I sat there for 15 minutes wanting to run. And then, uh, but I didn't, because I didn't want to, I didn't want to, I wanted to honor the ritual. And then as soon as it was done, I just went out and called my wife. 
and I didn't call my sponsor. I didn't call my therapist. I just called my wife and I said, Hey, I said, you know, that story that about me, them guys robbing me and me hitting them with a pipe. And my wife says, yeah, I remember that. And I said, that's not the truth. I said, what really happened uh, was him and about three or four guys came into my room, into my cell and uh, beat me and raped me. And, uh, and it was pretty bad and it was pretty violent. And, uh, and I was pretty bloody. And my celly came back that night or about an hour later. And he wanted me to go to the doctors. I wasn't going to go. I said, I'm not going to the infirmary. Because I know if I go to the infirmary and I'm like, I'm, he cut me here and I was bleeding a lot and, you know, I was bashed up and uh, they're not, they're not going to let me out. And so I said, I'm not going. And he said, well, then you have to do something about it. I said, I'll do whatever. And so the next day, while the guy was watching TV, I just hit him in the head with a pipe. And, you know, my darkest, I've had so many dark moments, but that, my my buddy, if he hadn't pulled me off, I think I would have killed him. I had never had that much rage. And I've, I've never had that much where I could not see. I was like, I, it was all red. Like, my whole vision was red. It was just, you know, like a veil. And, uh, and of course, I got caught because I was just blood all over me and ended up going to Terre Haute and... So that's so so that's a long way to say, you know, and like why didn't I want to go to the prison? But um what happened and maybe this you know, I went in there for fifteen years. I went in there, you know, twice a week for fifteen years and took men through the steps at this maximum security prison. Uh but I would have missed it, you know. And maybe that opened me up to be able to talk about it. But uh this lady Marion it just got me to go and I started going. You know, I didn't want to go, but I did. And then while I was there, there's a uh, the the meeting that they had, which was at like a 1950. They've been registered by New York forever, so it's a real legit A meeting inside called the Ledge Group. And uh, and I didn't like the way it was going because I thought it was just middle of the road. And I remember calling this guy Tom I from North Carolina, who's an amazing man, and he was a guy who killed somebody drunk driving and became a warden. And uh, he's a big deal in AA um, as far as if you could be a big deal <laughs> anyway he, he was one of my heroes and i called him up and i told him what was going on and he said well why don't you start a meeting on a different day and take men through the steps so they can have transformations before they leave because he was the one who told me there's no such thing as a gate conversion and what he meant by that is you, you can't just decide not to do anything and then when the gates open up you're going to convert that doesn't work that way he said but if men are going through the process and they get awakened spiritually inside they probably won't come back. And I thought that was ridiculous. And so I called another guy from Colorado and I called Don up and I said, Hey, you know, he told me the same thing, exact same thing. I thought they were talking to each other. And, uh, and so it was clear to me, I had to do that. So I started this group taking men, you know, taking men as a group, you know, it, it started off with three. And then pretty soon we, every, we just had new groups, 15 guys, 10 guys. It was just, you know, and people were getting well. And I was getting well. If you want to know the truth is, that's probably fed my spirit the most. Mm. You know? And, uh, yeah, I had a lot of experiences. In fact, one of the, the very first guy who was in my first group, he ended up doing 22 years, just got out last year. And I remember him calling me. And he said, you know, he's hooked up. We hooked him up. He's like in A meetings. He's in Maine. He's like all connected, you know. And he went through my group, with my group, but he went, he joined. Because I, I said to these guys, I said, everybody's looking for a psychic change. Come and see me. We're going to go through the steps. And him and two other guys came. And uh, he was the only guy. Well, the other guy finished. Two guys out of three finished, you know, got into their men's process. The other guy walked away from AA and went in and out of prison for a long time. And this guy just, 
you know, became a basically the foundation of that group? You know, um, I've done a lot of episodes, and every once in a while, I, for me personally, kind of feel the spirit of my higher, <clears throat> excuse me, of my higher power in the room with us when we're recording these things. Uh, and this is one of those times. Uh, I never know where these things are going to go when, you know, people come, as you know, we pray on the beginning and we prayed on the beginning of this that we can grow closer to God, we can grow closer to each other, and hopefully we can lay down something on a recording uh, that can help people in all four corners of the world. And I have no doubt that this is going to do that. All right, so what else do you want? I, 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 you know, it's hard to put it all into one little uh, episode here, but what do you want to add before we leave, Brian? You know, What's I'll, on your heart? I think I want to tell a story. It's, and I do it a lot when I'm asked to speak, but I think it's so important because I was taught by some, you know, like we all have teachers in AA. I mean, you and I both know that. We've been around long enough, and there's always people before us who give us some wisdom. And I, this guy I had met, and he had talked about this vital sixth sense that they talk about in 1011 and about this intuitive thought. And, uh, and he was teaching me, and I don't know if teaching me, but he was, anyway, he was informing me like, that's how I need to live my life. Like, you must live by intuitive thought. And the whispers of God uh, can't be heard when you're full of resentment, fears, and you have all this stuff. So it's always to continue to write inventory, to continue to be clean, you can hear it. And uh, I don't know how long I have, but it's about a two or three minute story. But I, I was uh, moved to Texas in 2011. And so my wife and kids stayed in Maine. And I, you know, this is Round Rock, down Austin area. And so I bought a house and then my kids were still in school. So they stayed there. And it was like April of 2012. And my dad, you know, like when I told you my dad gave me $20, this is the type of man he was. See, when, when he would give me $20 on my commissary every week when I was my first six years, I used to get mad. Like, why is he controlling my commissary t intake? Like, why don't you just give me 80? Why don't you just give me like six months worth? Why does he got to give me 20 every week? And I never asked him about that, but I remember harboring that resentment and writing about it. And I remember about eight, nine years sober, my dad said, we were golfing and having lunch and we were, I don't know, we were talking about something and it came up. And he asked me, he said, you ever wonder why I, uh, well, you know what? It was connected to my daughter, but I'll tell that story another time. But anyway, he, he asked, you ever wonder why I sent you 20 a week as opposed to just like sending you a bulk? Like why I had to go down to the post office, get a United States postal money order. You know, like, and I said, no, but I used to get mad and I thought you were trying to control me. And he said, no. He goes, I just wanted you to get something every week from someone that loved you. <sighs> see, and I, as alcoholic and self-centered, I can't see that. That doesn't look like love to me. That looks like control. And when my spirit's asleep, I can't see it. And my spirit's awake, it made sense. So my dad was having strokes. And he was in and out of these little nursing places, you know, like 30 days, 20 days. And then he go back to my mom's. And it was April, and he had one of those episodes. And uh, I had uh, he was at, back at my mom's, and my oldest brother happened to be down there, too. So I had two brothers in Tucson. One, he has two houses, but he was there. And uh, I was in meditation. I came out of 
prayer, my morning rituals, you know, like I do every time. And I heard this whisper, which was God, as far as I'm concerned. And he said, uh, you should go see your father. Now, logically, it didn't make sense. But I've also been taught that the whispers of God never seem logical. They just, you know, they always seem like, what? Why would I do that? And so I remember uh, calling my mom and my brother. I said, you don't need to come. He's fine. That's great. Anyway, I just knew I had to pay attention to that. So I flew out uh, to Tucson and walked into my mom's house and my dad was dying. He was dying in the bed. You know, and I knew it. You know, I knew it. I could see it. They couldn't see it. And maybe because they were too close to it and I was just coming into it. And uh, so I remember climbing into bed with my dad and letting him know like, hey, dad, it's Brian. And he was saying the words that I think every son wants to hear, which is, um, hey, son, I'm really proud of you. Those are the last words he said. And uh, at least coherent words. And I remember that day just taking him to the bathroom, you know, wiping him up, just taking care of him. And then I just realized, like, he's too sick to be here. He's got to go to the hospital. My mom was against it, but I called 911, and they took him to the hospital. You know, my parents were married 46 years, so she sees what she wants to see. I get it. Uh, I wasn't mad at her. I was just like, no, we're going to do something different. And so when he was there, they figured out that he had bladder cancer, and it was advanced. But they've been dealing with these little TIs. He was having these strokes, little things, and he they didn't even know. And uh, so we were in there, and uh, it was me and my brother, my, my mom's brother, his wife. Uh, anyway, it was a whole bunch of us. I don't think his wife was there, but it was a lot of people in the room. And the doctor said, you know, the nurse said, we got to go home, right? He's fine. He's not, nothing's going to happen tonight. He needs some rest. Like, you guys should go home. And so as I started to leave, I looked down. And I saw my dad's feet. And I don't know, I just happened to see him and his toenails, like nobody had been taking care of my dad. Like his toenails were almost curved underneath. They were so long. And uh, and I was just super mad. And my dad's like a sweet guy, you know, like really a nice guy. I mean, he's not very emotional, but he's got his, like his actions are super kind. Never gossiped about anybody, never talked bad about anybody. Just a good guy. It was a Korean War vet, you know, uh, Anyway, I, I saw those and I just knew like, so we ended up getting in the elevator, going down and I was just mad. And I knew I was going to go back and went out to the cars and everybody started leaving. And I, I started my car like I was going to leave and then everybody left and I walked back. And the nurse said to me, he said, what are you doing here? And I said, have you seen my dad's feet? And she had. And I said, I'm not going to leave until... I'm not going to leave until we, uh, until I clean his feet. I didn't say we, I said me. And she knew I was serious and she, and I wasn't aggressive or anything. I'm, I mean, I'm five foot one. I can't be too aggressive, but she went and got some soap and some clippers and some rags and her and I washed my dad's feet, you know, clipped his nails. And, uh, I remember like, I think I was in one of those moments where I don't remember what I was saying, but I was telling her about, I think I was just talking about what a bad son I'd been. And we it's probably there 30 minutes, 40 minutes. And he was, he was good. And he wasn't even awake to it. He didn't know what was happening. And I'm not really a big fan of feet. I don't like them. They creep me out. But the truth is, this is what was required. And so uh, we started to walk out and this lady who I'd never met before, and I'd never seen her since, she gave me one of those. She pulled me aside and she said something. She said, you know, I don't recognize the son you just talked about. And so she gave me one of those hugs, which, you know, you know when you need one, right? 
And I remember thinking, that's Alcoholics Anonymous. Like, that's the 12 steps in action. Like, the transformation that, because the son that I described to her was was there. He lived at one time. And, uh, and what she said was, like, I don't recognize that. And uh, my dad died two weeks later. And I would have missed it. I would have missed it. Thanks for sharing that, Brian. All right. I'm going to read page 164 of the big book. Is there a Kleenex over there? Okay. Okay, I'll get you one in a second. <laughs> um, page 164 of the big book says, Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us, like me and Brian, as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. Thank you, Brian, again for being here. Thank you for asking me. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much, Brian, for coming in here and putting your heart out there and being vulnerable for all of us to listen in on your story. I feel honored and privileged to be able to sit down with the men and women like you that come in here and share with me one-on-one regarding the most sacred parts of their lives. And I know that I grow from it, and I, I pray that the people who are listening to this may grow from it as well. We will be having Brian back in here for some additional episodes at a later date. I just have to get him scheduled in, and uh, I will definitely do that. If you enjoyed that, or if you got a lot out of that, maybe is the way to put it, and you think that somebody else would enjoy hearing that story today, and it may be just what they need, please pause your device and share with a friend and or a family member. Um, and like I said, it may be just what they need today. Once again, thank you, Mr. Brian. Now, on to a little bit of listener feedback for you, Pat Post. In the secret, I just said, uh, that's a, that's an alliteration, right? Two P's in a row. Would it have to be three P's in a row to be an, alliterate, uh, an alliteration? Like past posts, probably, you know, or can just Pat Post be an alliteration? Nonetheless, Pat Post in the secret Facebook group, she says, Matthew part one and part two were Awesome. Matthew M. bared his soul and God is with him. A great example of God's grace. Thank you. And what Pat is referring to there is episodes number 142 and one, excuse me, episodes number 141 and 142. That's Matthew M. part one and Matthew M. part two. And those, that's a, a couple 
of episodes back. And if you haven't listened to that, I would highly recommend it. And Darlene actually posted in the secret Facebook group as well. She says, absolutely loved Matthew M part one and part two. I was touched and moved by Matthew's story of recovery, the miracle of grace bestowed by a higher power that can heal and restore a broken person, relationships, and circumstances is truly amazing. Thank you, Matthew, for being so open, honest, and willing in sharing your story. God bless. Can't wait to hear you on another podcast. Yes, we have Matthew scheduled for some time to do some additional recordings as well. I'm getting to them as quick as I can. All right. Uh, Terry B writes in. Terry is from Beaverton, Oregon, not Oregon. I have been lectured about that in the past. It is Oregon, not Oregon. Anyway, she says, I'm Terry B from Oregon. Sobriety date is one nine, excuse me, uh, January 19th, 2011. I just want to pop pop in and tell you that I absolutely love, in big capital letters, your podcast. Thank you so much, John, for your service and, quote, quirky (laughs) sense of humor. Three exclamation points. Love it, exclamation point. I began listening to your podcast during the, quote, pandemic lockdown, unquote. I was laid off for nine weeks and listened Every day while I was out walking, between Zoom meetings, that is, I so appreciate every time I listen. Your speakers are, quote, spot on, unquote. I always relate to them on so many levels, and being an alcoholic, I just know that you have Bill C. on often just for me. Three exclamation points. In early sobriety, Bill was the first AA speaker I ever had the privilege of hearing. It was at the North Coast Roundup in Vancouver, British Columbia on Easter weekend 2013, an absolutely pivotal weekend in my sobriety. As I was there to make an amends with my estranged mother and stepfather, Unbeknownst to me, the hotel we were staying at just happened to be the same hotel where the convention was being held. Coincidence? I think not. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. If you believe that, I got a bridge for you, a bridge in the desert for sale, wink, wink. Anyway, I was absolutely blown away to see 2,000 plus Alkies in one place as it was my first ever glimpse into an AA convention. Bill was the first speaker I heard and I was absolutely mesmerized. I completely hung on every word he was speaking and I still do. I just get so much from his message. I have been blessed to hear him at other conventions since. Before heading up for that weekend, my home group suggested I find a meeting close by for a backup. Well, I think I have my quote backup. <laughs> 2000. 2,000 plus of them to be exact. I had no clue there was going to be a a convention there. Heck, I didn't even know what an AA convention was. I was so green and I had so much to learn. But I got to tell you, it was fish 
on from the get-go. Now, I go to conventions whenever possible. Thank you again, John, for you and your speakers. I feel very blessed to have stumble-bumbled my way to you. I was born before 1980, and I am quite technical, technologically challenged, so figuring out podcasts and earbuds was... <laughs> Interesting double exclamation point. God bless, and I'll hear you out on the trail. Terry from Beaverton, Oregon. Well, you know what, Terry? I hope that you are out there on the trail when you are listening to this. Thank you so much uh, for writing in. And as you know, I copied you on that email, uh, or, or I replied to your email, and I copied Bill C. on that, and he absolutely loved hearing from you. Thank you so much for writing in. Brendan writes in on the IG and the Instagram, and Brendan says, John, I very much appreciate what you're doing with this podcast. I am a contractor, and I work home most of the time. At first, I struggled with this as the time alone. At first, I struggled with this as the time alone with my thoughts and fears wasn't always productive. However, in addition to your frequent conversation in addition sorry I'm messing this all up, Brenda. However, in addition to frequent conversations with my HP and good music, I listen to Sober Speak while I'm working, and I find it really helps me to stay in a good place with my head. Much like a meeting, I always find something I can relate with and take away from you and the speakers. You find speakers who are insightful, articulate, and funny. They all sound like they are really, quote, doing the deal, as we as we say up here in Maine. Speaking, of course, if you're ever in Maine on a Tuesday night, come on over to the Foul Mouth Foreside Group. <laughs> <laughs> well, wait a sec. No, no, not fat. Falmouth. It's F A L, but it looks like foul mouth. <laughs> I've been to a lot of foul mouth meetings, but, but nonetheless, the Falmouth, I'm assuming that's how you pronounce it, Foreside. <laughs> that's another weird word. Foreside. F O R E S I D E. Sounds a little like a foreskin. Nonetheless, I digress. Come over to the foul mouth foreside group. We'd love to have you. Big smiley face. Thank you again for putting all this together. God bless you, and I hope you and your family are well. Brendan. Well, Brendan from Maine, and I wrote you back and I told you this. I was actually born in Maine. I don't don't know much about it. Now, I've been up there on business, and I have been there actually with a friend of mine uh, for, uh, he had a house up there at one point. We spent a week up there with me and my family, but I don't remember much of it from when I was a little kid. But nonetheless, thank you uh, very much, Brendan, for writing in uh, on the Instagram. I do appreciate it. By the way, if you want to follow us on Instagram, I'm at, uh, what is it? At Soberspeak, all one word. Tracy writes in, and Tracy says, Hi, John. I just listened to my first Soberspeak episode, the Matthew M. Part 2 
podcast. Such a powerful story. Well, there's Matthew M. again, folks. If you haven't heard Matthew M., I would definitely go back and hear it. Anyway, she says, I definitely cried multiple times. Love the message of the process of surrendering, followed by grace, which attracts love. I've just re-entered the rooms of AA after a few years hiatus, time spent as a, quote, dry but hungry drunk, unquote, as I have been trading alcohol for food basically since I left AA, often wallowing and eating in isolation. Last week, I met up with someone I knew back in my early days of recovery, and our conversation inspired me to come back. It's been just over a week since our conversation, and I've attended a few meetings, and I feel amazing. I haven't had any cravings to binge eat which I haven't for which I haven't experienced for years coincidence question mark I think not I'm ready for the promises to come true and materialize and I'm ready to work for them thanks for the work that you are doing also please add me to the super secret Facebook group best Tracy well and as you know Tracy we got you that invite out and so happy to have you along for the ride in the secret Facebook group and thank you for reaching out really appreciate it Anne writes in, she says, uh, John, I found Sober Speak looking through podcasts to listen to in the car. My newest laugh out loud sobriety date is July, is July 20, excuse me, July 12th, 2020. I've been in and out of AA. I've been in and out and around AA since 2014. I'm currently listening to Gary Tay, Gary K talk about step 11. He is fantastic. I love your podcast. Keep it up. Well, thank you, Ann. Appreciate you writing in. And I passed those uh, uh, comments on to Mr. Gary K. And he was so appreciative to hear that. Dawn writes in and she says, John, I have been listening to your podcast for a week now and it is a lifesaver. I am two weeks sober after drinking for a few years. I previously was sober for 33 years, trying desperately not to let my shame pull me under. I really would like to have access to the super secret Facebook group. And you know, I got that to you, Don. And she said, I just listened to Bill C and it was just what I needed, Don. Well, Don, and we need you as well. And it takes all of us. And I pray that you don't let that shame drag you under. Um, and I'm so glad you're back. And as I said, when I wrote you back in an email, you do have experience, strength and hope to share. And uh, God bless you. And I'm so glad that you got back up on that horse and started riding it again. Matthew writes in, my man, Matthew, he says, not the Matthew M that is on the podcast. This is another Matthew. Anyway, he says, John, thank you so much for all you do with our meeting between meetings at our fingertips. Well, you are welcome, Mr. Matthew. Your enthusiasm and passion is evident 
Uh, and at least for this alcoholic, you provide encouragement and strength. Well, right back at you, Mr. Matthew, you provide the same to me, my friend. We're all in this together. And he says, I greatly appreciate the excellent interviews, and in particular, Matthew M, part two, interview. And then he says, maybe it's just a, a first name thing, question mark. <laughs> All you Matthew stick together, huh? And he says, God bless Matthew. Uh, So anyway, thank you, Matthew, so much for writing in. I appreciate it. Katerina writes in. Katerina, what a pretty name. Katerina, and isn't there like a, a tennis player or something named Katerina? I really should, like I said, look this stuff up. I should Google this stuff before I start to (laughs) record an episode. But you know what? Hey, I just got so much time and I'm fairly lazy sometimes. Anyway, Katerina says, hi, John. My name is Katerina and I'm 28 years old and I am from Melbourne, Australia. Well, Vegemite sandwich, um, down under, crankies, uh, all the all the various uh, things I can think about with uh, Australia. Uh, kangaroos. Uh, what are those little? Oh, what are those other things? The things that are koalas. Koalas. <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, does that make a difference if you just yell that stuff stuff at the top of your lungs? Um, I. I don't know, but anyway, thanks for writing in from Australia, Katarina. She says, tonight, I decided to tune in to Alcohol Recovery Subject Podcast, and I found yours, John. I'm really enjoying the personal anecdotes and being able to, and I'm able to relate to all your guest speakers. It is helpful the conversation of the interview starting from how it all began. I really like the light humor in episode five. Thought it was great. Well, you are going back into the archives. Episode five. That is a while back. I have to go look at that. Nonetheless, she says, it is nice to tap into different educational resources. Usually I get my info from YouTube. I look forward to further listening. Thank you. Katarina. Well, Katarina, thanks for writing in. And I'm glad that we can be an educational resource for you, young lady. Thanks for writing in. I appreciate it. Ryan writes in and Ryan says, hi, John. I'm from Conway, Arkansas. My name is Ryan and I'm, you know, and he probably doesn't talk like that at all. And, you know, there's a thing about people from Texas. I'll say y'all and talking a deep Southern drawl all the time. Now I got a little bit of a Southern thing going on, right? But uh, not just because you're from Arkansas. You don't talk like you're from Arkansas. Anyway, he says, hi, John. I'm from Conway, Arkansas. My name is Ryan and I'm a 35 year year old who on June 20th celebrated one year of sobriety. Yeehaw, Ryan, I love it. I've been in and out of the program for 17 years. I've ruined my life numerous times, but for the first time, I began doing the steps, and I have now gained a lot of hope for the future. I began listening to you at the beginning beginning of the quarantine. Well, because I needed as much AA as possible during the pandemic, laugh out loud. I work in a restaurant in the morning. So when I do prep, I listen to you on my headphones and it really gets my day started. Thanks for all you do, Ryan J. You know, Ryan J., 
I completely understand what doing prep work is. Worked in for restaurants for worked in restaurants for many years, and I'm so glad that we can keep you company while you're going through that. Thanks for writing in. Jonathan from Philly writes in. Mm, this is a tough one for me to read. He said, I was just wondering how Bryce is doing because I was just listening to Chris M's episode and he's got a little emoji with a, a, a teardrop. Uh, hope all is well um, and you're doing well, brother. Much love. And so I did reach out to Chris. Quite honestly, I had been uh, avoiding that. And if you haven't heard Chris's episode, it's called Pray for Bryce. And the reason it's called Pray for Bryce is that he had a, um, a son, very, very, very young son. I think he was less than a year old, uh, who was struggling with his life. And they knew that there was just so much time left for that little boy. And that's why the title of the episode was Pray for Bryce. And um, for those of you who have been wondering out there, um, uh, I, I had been reticent to reach out to Chris. And and I shouldn't have, but I was afraid what the answer may be. And I did reach out to him. And Bryce did pass away. And Chris said that he and his family are basically in the middle of healing, you know. There's not much you can say during something like that. But Chris, if you were listening, my friend, and your lovely bride, our prayers are out to you. Um, love you, brother, and uh, uh, I hope you're doing well. And Jonathan, thank you for reaching out to me and asking the question. I do appreciate it. Rebecca writes in. And Rebecca is from New Zealand. She is a, oh man, I almost forgot. Oh, I have forgotten the term, uh, a kiwi. Thank you. Much like the kiwi shoe polish we have here in the United States and the kiwi fruit that we eat. Now, how the name kiwi came up for those folks, I have no idea. But anyway, she says, hi, John. Thank you for doing the podcast, Smiley Face. And we're doing okay here in the Southern Hemisphere. But I can't wait until we can travel the world again. Rebecca, I hear you. In the meantime, she says, I had better brush up on my Te Rio, which I think is basically Kiwi language. Uh, and anyway, she says it literally translates the language or Maori. And then she says, Kakito Anyo. And I hope I got that right. Kakite Anyo. Rebecca. Well, Kakite Anyo back to you. Or Kakite uh, I know. Anyway, whatever. Sorry, Rebecca. Uh, back at you, though. Steve writes in again, and he says, John, wow. Uh, I totally, well, it was totally unexpected to hear you read my email and comments on it after the June 12th episode with JS. Well, you're going to hear it again here. But he says, I appreciate the thought and I'm sharing that with others. I'm now at day 114 and doing well. Yay, Mr. Steve. And I'm sure by the time this comes out, you'll be well past 114 days. But he says, great, 
but I know it's one day at a time for all of us. That's right, Steve. You have been an instrumental part of my recovery as I have learned so much from the experiences and philosophy of your guests. I have listened to almost every episode and I am grateful for what you are doing. My meeting between meetings, exclamation point. So, if I can get an invite to the secret Facebook group, it would be great. My email is associated with my Facebook group is such and such. And then he talks about being a, uh, I, I can't really, anyway, he's a, he's a diehard Chicago Cubs fan. And he says, again, thank you for the service you provide. Absolutely outstanding, Steve B. Well, thank you, Steve. And I'm glad we can be a big, or excuse me, I'm glad we can be a small part of your journey. And finally, Mary Lunn. I hope I had that name right. Mary, was it Mary Lunn or Mary Lynn? I thought it was Mary Lynn, but I've got Mary Lunn written down here. Anyway, she writes in and she says, Hello, John. I live in Lasonia. Lasonia, L-A-C-O-N-I-A, New Hampshire. I've been sober in New Hampshire. She says, I've been sober for only eight months now, but it has been the best eight months of my life. I've heard that sentiment many times from many folks, Miss uh, Mary Lynn. Anyway, she says, I have a sponsor who has a sponsor working the steps and very involved with service around my area. I think it's been so amazing having a podcast and I think I, I think it's so amazing having a podcast like you. I think it's just so damn cool. <laughs> Well, my sponsor and I were talking about it the other day. I found Sober Speak when I went back on Spotify and I searched the quote sober. And now I listen to your podcast or another sober podcast anytime I'm in my car, unless I'm at a Zoom meeting. I have been able to get my life back and it's more amazing every day when I wake up. I am back in school now. I have opened a semi-side business making bracelets and it seems like the recovery scene is my biggest buyers. The name of my company is, oh, should I read this? I kind of have a policy of not usually doing this, but I'm going to go ahead and read it. You know, if you're looking for a bracelet, it can't hurt. Anyway, um, it's called, uh, uh, and I, I, I don't know this uh, uh, company. I don't know anything about it, but I'll give a little shout out here to, to Mary Lynn. And it says, it's called A Grateful Bead Never Breaks. And it is literally, and it, the business, literally like puts me into my quote, God spot. Thank you so much for your service and inviting me to the super secret Facebook group. Well, you are quite welcome. All right, everybody. That's a wrap. We have one more week in the books. As I always say, I'm doing this one week at a time. Keep coming back. It works if you work it.